when I first started, I was a reference archivist, which meant that I answered if somebody wrote in and asked a question and couldn't get to Ottawa, I could do a little bit of research for them and try to find the answer for them. So it was a really cool job because I got to do research into yeah. all sorts of things. And somebody had wanted to know about the different battalions. They were trying to trace their ancestor who had fought in the First World War in a specific battalion. And so I had ordered in all the original handwritten, you know, lists of names and um, some of them typewritten, but on very old paper, yeah. all the soldiers. And I was trying to find this one person and I was going through and I noticed that the battalion numbers and the divisions and the sort of units that the people fought in, it was really hard to find the person because the numbers kept changing. And I was like, why do these numbers keep changing? And that like, you know, it's the first division and now it's the 23rd division and it's the 45th battalion. I'm probably getting all this wrong and any military historians will be annoyed with me. But the idea was that the, the divisions kept changing. And what I realized was that all the men were dying. Joanna from JCV Art Studio. I have a podcast. No kidding. Hey, <laughs> I haven't had coffee. <laughs> Anyways, so first time listeners, I'm the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child, and I am working on Spy Girl right now. I'm near the end of second edits, and I'm just, the momentum is building. So then, I, I, then I'm taking a little bit of a, a break from that story before I go back. We're doing well in BC. Uh, a little bit of a puppy update. Um, Pepper, also known as baby shark teeth, is doing really well. He and Ozzy are getting along great. Um, every day there's a little bit of improvement and it's he's been a lot of a lot of fun and his other nickname is thunder paws they're both mini schnauzers but ozzy has a longer body and he's been running with me and um thunder paws he's stockier and people keep telling me look at his paws joanna and i'm just like oh god and you could hear his little paws dunk, 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 running down the hall so the the dogs are doing well Today, today, I have Amy Tector with me, and we're going to talk about her very entertaining, intriguing debut novel, The Honeybee Emeralds, which for me, it was like a hidden treasure reading it. Um, I saw, I, Amy, honestly, 
I was thinking last night, where did I see you? And I think it was on Instagram, maybe through Crime Writers. And then I saw your book and then I read your book and I thought, like the, the blurb on Amazon. And I thought, this sounds really interesting. I wonder if she'd be interested in coming on the podcast. So, you know, it, it wasn't a book that was recommended to me. So it was one of those special finds. Okay. And um, so first a little bit about Amy, and I should have checked with her before about some pronunciations here. Amy holds a PhD in English literature from the Université Libre de Brussels. That's perfect. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. She has worked at Canada's National Archives, Library and Archives Canada for 20 years. She spent many years as an expat living in Brussels and in The Hague, where she worked for the International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia. And that um, that really rings bells for me because I worked for two lawyers who prosecuted um, the Yugoslavian leader. And I can't, his name has escaped me now for war crimes. So it's, it's a small world when occupations and things like that collide. Anyways, Amy, she lives in Ottawa with her husband, daughter, and dog. And Amy, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book. Ah, well, I'm so happy to be here and so honored that you're talking to me without coffee in you first. So that (laughs) (laughs) feels like a real honor. (laughs) So like I said, I told my sister-in-law about your book because she was, um, she was here on the weekend and she was asking me about books to read. And, uh, you know, it is, you know, sometimes I wonder with books, certain books come into your life just right when you need it. Um, I don't know whether it's just some things happening in my life, things happening in the world. And your book came along and like in the first chapter, I'm, I'm laughing, you know, and I'm chuckling and I am hooked and I feel for these females in this character. So with that build up, can you tell our listeners what the Honey Bee Emeralds is about? And I'm going to have a little coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. Um, yeah, well, um, thank you so much for that. That's what I was going for. It's um, Honeybee Emeralds is a lighthearted mystery. It's set in Paris amongst the expat community. Uh, and it's the story of a mysterious and beautiful necklace that is discovered um, by, uh, by one of the characters. And that sets off a series of events as a group of women who don't know each other necessarily very well, or they don't all know each other, work to solve the mystery of where the necklace came from, what its past is, and sort of along the way, their own relationships deepen and change. They discover things about themselves and about their relationships and their friendships, their careers, their, you know, feelings about motherhood and and love and all the rest. So that's, that's the story uh, kind of in a nutshell. It's, it is so cool. Okay. So (laughs) what inspired you? Like I've got a, oh God, I have a few questions. Like, was there an actual honeybee emeralds necklace? Because I was Googling that, okay. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm wondering, was there an actual necklace that inspired this novel? Like what inspired this novel? Um, so there is no honeybee emeralds necklace, but there is, um, but that kind of jewelry, that really elaborate, beautiful um, jewelry that takes inspiration from nature um, was being produced in Paris uh, when my fictional necklace was created sort of in the 1840s, 1850s. Paris was really the center for this very artistic, very um, elaborate and interesting um, jewelry. So then the necklace comes out of that tradition, although it itself uh, is fictional. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my search history over the weekend. Okay. <laughs> well, and there's some beautiful stuff out there. I mean, when I was doing the research for it, I went down a lot of rabbit holes of just, again, staring at all these beautiful brooches and, you know, tiaras and necklaces and everything. It was a ton of fun. Yeah. Now the women, we have Alice, Daphne, Lily and Elise. Yeah. And, um, you know, I am so pulling for Alice and Alexander. Okay. He was a surprise. And Elise, she has my heart. And um, I was, I was once asked if my heroine Jade was my alter ego. So I'm wondering if any of these characters is one of them more like you, or is there a little bit of you in all of these characters? Um, you know, I'm sure like, I'm sure your answer would have been the same. There's a little bit of you in every character. And then there's, there's other things, you know, mixed in. I probably most like Lily, um, personality wise, Daphne is kind of based on my the, my one of my very good friends who you know, a little, there's a little bit of her in there and then you know I think we all were Alice at one point in our lives sort of tentative and trying to find our way in the world and unsure of themselves and then probably my favorite character is Elise who is the sort of grumpy <laughs> French woman who's a little bit on the side of for most of the story but um I just you know I'm quite a cheerful optimistic happy person so it's it's fun then to write about someone who's a little angrier and, and crankier. <laughs> I can let out all my, my own secret grumpiness. <laughs> so again, yeah. Um, and that's the other thing. If the listeners haven't picked up, this book takes place in Paris. Oh gosh. Right. So now before we talk about Alexander, the perfumer, that was a surprise. This opening scene, okay, with Alice and Alexander had me chuckling and I would love to read a few, I think it's just a page, but it's just this scene. And then you can talk to me about, about sure. Alexander. So the listeners know Alice and Alexander, their offices, their, their buildings, they're right next to each other and they've lost the heat in the magazine. Like, because Alice works in the magazine and the office has lost the heat. So she's been told, go fix it, right? She's the, the intern. So she, <laughs> she goes next door. Now let's start here. Here we go. The door was wrenched open. Alice had taken a step back. An enormous man, at least six foot five, stood before her. Not just tall, but heavy set and thick bodied. 
Even his hair seemed big, brown, curly, and wildly uncombed. Bonjour, she had said. She'd never actually talked to the neighbor before. He had simply been a shape she occasionally passed on her way into the office. What do you want? He growled in English. I'm sorry, but I was wondering if you... She stopped. The most amazing scent, like honeysuckle and tangerines, wafted out from behind him. It reminded her of the hedgerows in summertime, when the whole family, her mother, Dale, and her two half-sisters, would drive out to visit her grandma in, sorry, grandmother in Skidby. Well, technically, Florence wasn't Alice's real grandmother, but she never made a fuss about that. Alice had always been grateful that she had one granny to lay claim to, given that all of her blood grandparents had been wiped out by ill health, stress, revolution, and state violence. What is that smell? She blurted. You like it? He asked, his scowl softening. His English was inflected with a slight accent that wasn't French. It's brilliant, she said. Good, he said. Then he had stepped outside and shut the door. He towered over her on the sidewalk. His belly overhung his jeans a little, and she could see the tip of it peeking over his waistband, like a hairy animal trying to climb out of his shirt. Why are you here? He demanded. I just, well, Lily sent me over. He stared at her blankly. You know, from next door, the editor of Bonjour Paris? That magazine, he said dismissively. Alice's irritation got the better of her shyness, and she surprised herself by speaking firmly. Yes, I'm Alice. She stuck out her hand. You are? He hesitated, as if debating whether to tell her. Common courtesy won out. Alexander, he said. They shook hands, and it felt like his massive paw might engulf her entire arm. Alice continued. Our heat has been out for ages. My boss, Lily, wanted to know if you had any luck getting in touch with the landlord. The landlord is a wanker, Alexander said. Yes, Alice agreed with a surprised laugh, her annoyance easing. Did, you, did your heat go out too? Yes. Well, maybe we could work together to get that sorted then. No, said Alexander. Oh, she lived in Paris for six months, so was used to racism and condescension. Flat refusal to help was a new thing. He seemed to realize that his last reply might have been a bit blunt. I fixed mine myself. You did, she asked. How? I made sure the lock shields on the radiators were open. Great, then maybe you could. Then I had to bleed the air out, Alexander continued. She waited a moment not daring to interrupt again. In the end, I needed to change the TRV. So do you think you could do that for us? Alexander stared at her. Could you come over and do that thing with the TRV or whatever? It depends. You might need to open the lock shields. Right, Alice said tentatively. Could you open those? Alexander shrugged, a rolling movement like a chunk of ice calving off a glacier. I'd have to turn the boiler off. Okay, Alice said. It's in the basement, he said. And so they descended to this network of interconnected arced bricked hallways, lit unreliably, as it turned out, by flickering 
light bulbs. That scene, I have been there. I have been there. I have been that person where you're like the newbie and it's like, okay, you go over there yeah. and, and you get this, this, fix this. And you're standing there and you just want help and you're getting these one answer replies. Right? And you're like, okay, can we work together? Right? So talk to me, talk to me about Alexander. Cause he was like under the radar and then he's, He's coming up as, as you keep reading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved him. So he, he might be my other favorite character. Just like you said, he's not a, he's not a massive character. He's, he's not a point of view character. The four women get to tell their own stories and he's on the side, but you know, I imagine him as this sort of solid, gruff, silent guy who's actually observing everything. And sometimes people in the book, kind of write him off and think he's kind of slow or whatever but in fact he's quite sharp and he's observing everything he's very sensitive and you know (laughs) he's kind of wonderful yeah yeah there was some I based him on I haven't said I've told anyone this but there was a there was a Netflix show set in Iceland with uh, this very big Icelandic actor and he's he was like the captain or the chief of police in this tiny Icelandic the fishing port and there's a murder and he's he solves it I forget now I can't remember what it what the show is called great mystery show and he's this giant burly guy and so in my head that's who Alexander is this sort of yeah perfect well and then what we find out is Alexander has a perfume lab with the copper vats bronze pots bronzed pots and vessels and the reader is learning about making perfume. And I was just wondering, how, 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 did, how did you come up with that? Like, like did, was there something in your own experience? No, no, I, I wanted to have, I, I wanted to make this um, novel very, very Parisian. I really wanted to kind of immerse people in sort of the most magical romantic parts of Paris. And so when you think of Paris, Parisian perfume is something. So, uh, you know, like I have lots of stuff about the food that people are eating and the wine they're drinking and the places they're visiting, art and the jewelry and everything. But I thought, oh, it'd be nice to get some perfume in there too. So that was, I, I so I thought it would be fun to have a perfumer, but then I had to do a lot of research on what that meant. And if there even was such a thing, because he's a sort of, he's a very exclusive perfumer who designs individual perfumes for wealthy people, essentially. And that's, he makes a livelihood out of that. And I, I didn't even know if that was possible, but nope, there, there are many exclusive, you know, bespoke perfumers, uh, a lot of them based in Paris. So I felt, I felt good about that. Well, that's good. Cause I told my daughter and I totally believed it. <laughs> That's the thing with reading this book. I said to her last night, I go, I don't know anymore what's fiction and what's <laughs> nonfiction, but it's great, you know. So you also have, you know, excellent lessons in this novel. Um, and I think anyone who, like my parents were immigrants. They came out from Hungary to Canada in um, 1950. And they were subject to some not nice labeling, okay, mm-hmm. from Canadians, yep. you know, because um, they were immigrants. And I'm thinking of Elise and her husband, Henri, 
and Henri's racism towards Syrians, right? Like, and you like you touch upon racism in this, thinking of also of Alice. And it's, I was wondering, because there's that scene when Elise is making dinner and Henri comes in and they're having dinner with the her boy, the boys, and he says something racist. And Elise is thinking about Alice and wondering about Alice's experience coming into, yeah. you know. So was any of that based on any personal experience with yourself? Um, I mean, I am a a white woman living in Canada, so I haven't haven't personally felt felt that racism, but I did deliberately want to make Alice as a character or I wanted to have a I wanted to have characters who weren't all white, who weren't reflective of that experience. So um, Alice kind of came up organically. Um, as I did some research to figure out who the big um, refugee populations would be in England for the time of birth, uh, like how old Alice was going to be in it. And uh, Iranians were, there was a massive Iranian immigration to the UK. So I thought that, well, that's really interesting. And then Iran has such a fascinating, like <laughs> fascinating history. So I was really happy to be able to put a little bit of that in there. So I, so I, I wrote from her perspective, but I was very conscious the whole time that this, that it wasn't my perspective and that I needed to get it right. So I did a lot of research reading um, first person accounts of um, uh, Iranian women was what I was really looking for in, in the West. So I, I found there was a great book of this, of from someone who was living in the States. And then I found another good book that was useful for someone who was living in the UK. So I tried to take those experiences um, you know, as well as other stuff, but those were the, those two books were the big ones and incorporate it into, into, uh, Alice's perspective of experiencing racism and, you know, those, those microaggressions and, and such into the book. And then I, um, hired a sensitivity reader of Iranian descent who read the novel and gave me more feedback, uh, that I was, I had at one point, uh, Alice eating the wrong kind or, you know, enjoying the wrong kind of food at the wrong time. She said, no, <laughs> and I mean, she had, she had some other great suggestions as well. So it was a really fruitful, um, experience. I would not have felt comfortable publishing the book without vetting this, vetting Alice's experience uh, with someone who had lived it. And then the, and then I voiced that to the publisher and they then had a second, had someone else review it as well, which was really wonderful and gave me some more insight and allowed me to make sure I was getting that right. Yeah. So I was quite nervous, especially because, because I was writing it from her point of view. And yeah. I, and I know I don't want it to, <laughs> I have a very privileged position and I don't want to, I don't want to take someone else's voice and space, yeah. but I also didn't, just want to tell the story of a white middle-class lady, you know, there's other voices and there's other people in the world. So I, I wrestled with it. I, I, I hope I did it all right. And then, and then the, the racism of other people towards her, I have observed. Um, yeah. And certainly I, I wanted to incorporate that. We did when, um, 
uh, especially at the beginning when the, there was a lot of Syrian um, refugees coming into Canada, I was I was lucky enough to be part of a couple of sponsorship groups. So I, I did get to work with specifically people coming from Syria, which is not the same experience as the people coming from Iran, obviously. But but I but some of that kind of sense of dislocation and fear and 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 gratitude to be somewhere safe, but also you know, confusion and longing to be home and where you belong. I, I have with my Syrian friends, I have I have seen some of that now firsthand, which has also been an enormous privilege. So I tried to put a little bit of that in there because, you know, it's just so staggering to imagine, like if I had to <laughs> move yeah. to Syria tomorrow, leaving everything behind, not speaking the language, not understanding the culture and the religion, like it would be so profoundly disorienting and terrible and scary. And then to then face discrimination and racism on top of that, like it's the immigrant experience, the refugee experience, as we're seeing with Ukraine and, and Afghanistan is just, uh, it's such a profound, tough experience for people that so many millions upon millions of people experience. And so yeah. I, the, the book isn't about that, but I, but there is a, there is a, a, a flavor of that. I tried yeah. to infuse in the novel. Well, it just, I think it adds such another level, uh, whether it's another level or gives it more depth. I, it just, it's, it's like I say, it's, it's, it was a treasure find reading this and I'm so enjoying it for all aspects of it. And like I said, I am so pulling for Alice, right? You know, I'm so pulling for her. And just there's this, that scene when she's walking, this got me where she's, she's walking to the library because she wants to look up information about Josephine Baker. And, you know, she's got her library card for a smaller library. And then Daphne says, no, no, you got a library card or a reader card? No, we're going to like this beautiful, it's, I want to go to that beautiful yeah, library, yeah. right? <laughs> just, yeah. You know, and she goes there and she's looked at because no, that reading card doesn't allow you access in here, you know, and she has to, to get a reading card, she has to pull out her passport mm-hmm. to apply, you know, and it's, it just makes you go, Holy smokes. She just wants to go to the library. Right. (laughs) You know? So anyways, anyways, let's talk about some other things I learned with this book. And that is, you know, I'm reading it and I'm thinking about what work you've done. And I'm thinking about the art world and I'm learning in your book that if a stolen piece of art is returned undamaged there's you say there's this don't ask don't tell approach is is this true is this something i i never knew this i yeah i I would say it's true ish i think i think the um and i'm sure that that the (laughs) police forces around the world that are dedicated to tracking stolen art would like to prosecute the the um the the criminals who've stolen the art or what have you um but at least from Daphne's point of view she's the character who's she's in charge of of kind of tracking the uh, knowing where the art is that's sort of basically her whole job it's not it's to it's to provide the sort of um the provenance of whatever piece of art is under discussion and so for her her focus isn't catching the criminal her focus is really like ensuring that that piece is where it should be and that 
like the documentation adds up. So she's because she's got a different focus, I think that's more of her approach. And again, there are her there isn't actually a United Nations office that does this work, but there are private companies that do this work of of keeping track of the provenance of works of art for insurance purposes and to prevent fraud and theft. Um, and so uh, I based, so again, there's some books written about, yeah. about that work. And so I based Daphne's job on those, on those uh, companies, which, you know, they'll work with the police. And of course, you know, if they have information about crimes, generally they'll pass it along, but their, their focus is on either recovering the art or like documenting where it's been. That's yeah. so, so it's a bit of a shift in focus. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's, so many news for me reading this, okay, and um, new things I learned, and you know, and you write how Emirati. Uh, I'm, 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 I, I don't, I don't. Is that how you pronounce that, Emirati? Emirati, yeah, yeah, yeah from the Emirates, yeah, yeah, yeah. About Emirati sheiks buying diamonds for their blonde mistresses. Wealthy arms dealers investing in jewelry to hide assets. The discreet sale of an heirloom piece to keep bankruptcy at bay. The list of people buying and selling jewelry for reasons best left undiscussed was long. Like that's in the book. Hey, (laughs) what are you going to say about that? You wrote it. Well, again, I mean, it's it's from the research that I did of these high-end jewelers in, in Paris and around the world, and this is what happens. It's not just, you know, diamond engagement rings, but but jewelry is immensely valuable, and so it is, you know, it's subject to all sorts of criminal undertakings and, and laundering and all the rest, um, and lots of bad people are interested in in trading in it. So there is a, there is a whole world there that it doesn't, when you see it sort of prettily, when you walk by and stare in the window, you don't realize that there's all this sometimes shady stuff uh, behind it. Well, that's the thing. Like, I feel so small in this world. Sometimes it just, what I, what I know or I don't know, you know, like anything about you know, crime and because of working in the prosecution office, you know, takes a lot to kind of rattle me. Right. Okay. Not that I'm saying I've seen it all. That's not what I'm saying, but it's, it's learning about jewelry. And I, and, and I remember she, I, I apologize. I can't remember her name. She had written a short story in the last Sisters in Crime Anthology, and it had to do with diamond smuggling. And it just, it it opened my eyes, right? Yeah. Okay. So thinking about your job, your previous occupations, what has been the most bizarre or most, and I I mentioned this question last night, and my husband said to me, she may not be able to answer that if they can be confidential, (laughs) right? right? So what I was wondering was, if possible, are you able to say what the most bizarre item or or most breathtaking item Mm. you found or cataloged? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot because I still work actually at the National Archives. And so so my job, um, you know, has in the past has been to to look through um, all sorts of different kinds of records and and like you said, catalog them and make them available for researchers. Um, But yeah found yeah I found some interesting things what um personal letters are always exciting um even if they are really mundane because there's that sense you're getting an actual window a snapshot into someone's someone else's life oh that's okay <laughs> I'm hearing your dog sorry my dog I think he's finished all the peanut butter in the Kong so if we have to stop for a minute you you let me I could always give them more peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) I think she'll settle down. Okay. That's funny. Um, Yeah. So, so that was definitely personal letters or something. The other thing that actually can be very affecting and moving is um, government records, which a lot of people don't think of because often it's very boring, dry, you know, you think of like the government memos or what have you, but if you know the background, they tell, they tell these stories. And I remember um, being a, uh, when I first started, I was a reference archivist, which meant that I answered if somebody wrote in and asked a question and couldn't get to Ottawa, I could do a little bit of research for them and try to find the answer for them. So it was a really cool job because I got to do research into yeah. all sorts of things. And somebody had wanted to know about the different battalions. They were trying to trace their ancestor who had fought in the First World War in a specific battalion. And so I had ordered in all the original handwritten, you know, lists of names and um, some of them typewritten, but on very old paper, all the soldiers. And I was trying to find this one person and I was going through and I noticed that the battalion numbers and the divisions and the sort of units that the people fought in, it was really hard to find the person because the numbers kept changing. And I was like, why do these numbers keep changing? And that like, you know, it's the first division and now it's the 23rd division and it's the 45th battalion. I'm probably getting all this wrong and any military historians will be annoyed with me. But the idea was the, the divisions kept changing. And what I realized was that all the men were dying. And so they didn't have enough for a division anymore. And so they were rolling a few divisions into one and they kept and you kept doing it. And so it was this very dry government list of names, but it told this just heartbreaking story of like the the sort of that idea of that senseless slaughter of the first world war and these and these boys these you know 18 year old boys dying in this foreign country and I just started crying in like in the reference room even though it wasn't even my story but it just hit me so sometimes it gets you from really uh different angles but um yeah and then of course there's lots of beautiful treasures to the beautiful artwork or uh you know there's beautiful um daguerreotype photographs from the very first types of photographs that are on these mirrored um sheets and you and and the so they they can be really beautiful to look at and all sorts of stuff like that so that's amazing yeah. that's yeah, amazing lots of, lots of good stuff in archives <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, like, uh, this is going to, like I say, it's going to sound like a bit of an odd question, but I'm going to blurt it out and then I'll explain. And I can even use, I'll use myself as an example. And the question is Did you know you had this novel in you? And Oh, what I mean is, you know, like when I started or even now when I'm when I'm writing and I start a novel, you know, you have 
I'm not a plotter. I very vague, um, you know, outline. I kind of write the scenes that kind of come to me. Um, so what I mean is when I start the product I end up finishing with is sometimes I'll go like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Okay. Like that's, no, I didn't even think I would boom, go off. It would land here. Right. So with the honeybee emeralds, I guess, how has it, like, how has it changed? Did it change? Did it grow? Did it go in different angles? Yeah. Well, you are a woman after my own heart because <laughs> I am not a plotter either. I actually get quite stressed when I see, you know, the people with their systems and their cue cards and their Excel spreadsheets. Cause I, I cannot do that. Certainly not for the first draft. I'm like you, I'm discovering as I write. So I, when I started Honeybee, I wanted, I knew I wanted to write a story set in Paris. I knew I wanted it to be fun and have the, I knew I wanted there to be a mystery and like a group of people kind of uncovering something um, together and sort of that, because I love those kinds of stories. So that's what I knew. Um, At the very beginning, it was going to be this uh, real love story between Lily and Jacob. And they, you know, there was going to be a happily ever after at the end where Lily um, and Jacob are together and small spoiler, or maybe anyway, <laughs> that's, not, that's not how it works out yeah. now in the novel, but that's in my sort of initial thinking, it, that's, that's what it was. And it just, that wasn't working. And I only had Lily as a, as a character, like as the uh, point of view character. And then these other people kept popping in, like <laughs> there was the young intern and I wanted to tell her story. And there was Lily's best friend, Daphne, and there was this grumpy French woman and, <laughs> and they all now needed their own, their own place. So yeah, so it really, it evolved as I was writing and it was a very messy writing process where I probably wrote, you know, two novels worth of, yeah, I probably wrote 200,000 <laughs> the wrong thing uh cutting and changing and evolving it so I I do wish I could be more efficient and I am trying to be more efficient in how I write so that it because it it takes a long time and I go down paths that don't that in the end I you know I cut characters or whole plots so it it doesn't feel super efficient all the time because I go the wrong way but that that has been my process but it's a great discovery and it's Gosh, yeah, because it it has been it you know there's so many scenes. I think of Alice going to the safety deposit box because she has to see the necklace, and I'm like, oh Alice, please be careful, please be careful. <laughs> Walk up the safety deposit box. Who's following you? <laughs> right, you know, right? Just oh god, yeah, yeah. Because I know with like with mine, yeah, characters. I think I've said this the past few podcasts. I had one character who he wasn't, he was going to get knocked off. Right. And mm -mm, he's, he's something about him. He kept coming back. And I, and as I found as myself, the author, it was, I think there's this one scene in the beginning where he's just, he realizes he's just in this bad situation. And I started pulling for him. I thought, (laughs) Okay, I can't kill him off if I'm pulling yeah. for him, right? Yeah. Like, come on, guy, right? <laughs> anyways, anyways, okay. So 
what's next? Like the foulest things is coming out in September. Yeah. And I've got you booked already. (laughs) Yeah. And did you want to talk a little bit about that one? Sure. Yeah. It's very, very different from Honeybee. And in fact, I wrote it before I wrote Honeybee. So it's, yeah. So I, I sold Honeybee and then told the publisher, I've got a couple of other books that, you know, that I've that shelved, but I think they're really good. <laughs> Do you yeah. want to see them? And so they, the publisher did see them and then, and, and liked them. So they actually bought the two books yeah. that I had already written, which is why I suddenly have this incredibly productive <laughs> year of writing. It's because two of them I had written years ago. So Phallus Things is a murder mystery, whereas Honeybee Emeralds is more, it's, there's no, there's no real crime, I would say, in Honeybee Emeralds. You know, there is hints of it, but it's a mystery, but a different kind of mystery. Yeah. Phallus Things is a kind of traditional murder mystery. You get that body pretty quick, uh, yeah. quickly in the story. And it's set in the archives. It's set in a fictional national archive. So similar to where I currently work, although not. <laughs> None of those people are my colleagues, just to be <laughs> perfectly clear. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's a, it's about a young girl who um, who's who's just starting in her career. She she stumbles across some mysterious letters, <clears throat> which lead her to investigate, which then embroils her in a in a murder. And so she's got to she's got to solve the mystery in the past. Um, yeah in order to sort of better uh, to to solve the 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 murder mystery in the in the in the um, current day and i do love that that's sort of what honeybee was too i do love using the past um to 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 inform what's happening in the present so there's there's some of that happening in the fabulous things and it's it's set in ottawa uh in the in the depths of uh winter okay and (laughs) time period like i i i was just looking ahead like there's some I remember seeing the year 1914. So it was, is that when we go back in time? Yeah. So it's set in 2010 because I wrote it around 2010. So, so I, that's actually when I wrote it. So it was contemporary when I wrote it. And then I, when I, when I went to revise it, it was just, there was a lot of stuff about cell phones and computers. And I was like, ah, I'm going to have to rewrite everything to bring it up to the present. And so I thought, well, it'll just be sort of a, it's 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 an odd it's a 12 years ago it's set 12 years ago that's okay because uh, it's the prequel so it's the first book and then I've got two more books coming that are what what they're what the publisher's calling the Dominion Archives Mysteries so there's so there's the foulest things in September which is set 10 years before the next two books which take up which are set around the archives but have different characters from the foulest things so okay. Okay. yeah Cool. But yeah, so we'll we'll see. Well, and I like. I think the publisher did a good job. Like when I'm, I'm, I've done a little bit of book design, and when I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, this is cool. I like how they did this. Yeah, you know, like the text, the text messages that are in there too. You know, just how they. Yeah. yeah. Like I find the cover really pretty, and yeah. and then all that intertext stuff. I wasn't expecting it, but I think it's, I think they did a really beautiful job. I was delighted. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So thinking about the file list things, um, I'm going to brag a little bit here. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I interviewed Tara Moss about oh, yeah. her novel, The Ghosts of Paris. Okay. And that takes place, you know, during the second world war. Um, 
there's your novel. So there's Tara's novel, your novel. I have the novel by Roxanne Velatosh. She's Romanian. Mm. And she wrote When the Summer Was Ours, which um, it, uh, that one's going to hit me hard because it takes place in Budapest, Hungary, oh, yeah. where my mom was from. And my mom lived through the Second World War, right? Yeah. So your book and all these books are on my nightstand. Looks damn good. Okay. It looks good, <laughs> you know. So, and I listened to a podcast by Spy Sisters mm-hmm. that talks about what women did in the war. And like I remember in grade, I think it was grade 11, grade 12, my history teacher, he was really good. And we were learning about World War II and the World Wars. And the one thing that's one of the things that stuck with me was he said how they were talking about women's contribution to the war effort, um, working in factories and uh, giving up their nylon so they can make parachutes. Right. Yeah. But there was so much more that women do. And I was wondering, do you feel there, I, I think, and what do you think if there's like this movement of female authors who are writing about women's contributions to the war efforts, which is far beyond what we learn in school. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, so fascinating. And um, like, I, I do write about that again in the book, that both um, two of the former owners of the Honeybee Emeralds, Matahari and Josephine Baker are involved, uh, really were involved in in sort of this the espionage world and i think women they're underestimated and and written off they're also around right they're on the home fronts because the men are all off fighting but who's there are are the women and the the old men so so they're available for that kind of domestic work as well so um yeah it it, there is such uh still so many insane unplumbed stories to be told about this kind of the courage and it's so easy then as a woman to think oh would I have the courage to do that would I risk it all for these for for these things and uh yeah they're great stories great yeah I was I was um I had I have a book that didn't come to fruition, but I had started to do the research on it. And one of my characters was going to have been a spy in the Second World War in France. So I was doing a bit of reading and there's an excellent, I was just looking for it while you were talking to see, but I can't find the title, um, this nonfiction book about uh, a female spies in Second World War France. That's yeah. a very compelling book. Anyway, I don't remember the name, but great stories out there to be mined. Well, I bought one. Oh my gosh, she was only, I believe she may still be around. So she's close to a hundred years old, this lady. And she, with another author, wrote her story. Uh, and she was Jewish, or she's Jewish. She was in France during the Second World War. She was only five feet tall. <laughs> and it was because, like, everyone, like, and I'm, I'm not coming down on men. Okay. That's not what I'm doing here, but the men in the army, they, they did not think her a threat. She was only yeah. this five feet tall, petite Jewish French woman. What yeah. threat was she? But man, the intelligence she gathered, you know, and like, Oh, her story just, it, 
it's yeah right so okay so amy what are you working on now you i take it it's more in this series um yeah so the i'm writing the third book in the dominion archives mysteries so the first one's coming out in the september the second one is going to come out next fall uh no next spring and then this last one that i'm actually writing will come out I don't know, in 2023, I think at some point, but uh, later in the year. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on that. So it's a, it's a murder mystery. It's um, there's like historical elements. It's this one will be set more in the Eastern townships in Quebec, which is where I'm from. Uh, so a rural locale, which I haven't done before, but I'm excited about. Uh, yeah, so it's, I, I've never written to a deadline before. Uh, so it's a little <laughs> scary. A little more stressful, uh, but uh, it's it's going well. And I would love to one day write a sequel to Honeybee. Um, that's kind of on my bucket list. So maybe okay. one day. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So my favorite question, which I ask whenever I can. Um, now, and I have to say here, I think it was Saturday night. I'm reading about this chic cafe near the Eiffel Tower, and you're talking about the um, croissants and <laughs> all of the French pastries. And it's about eight o'clock at night, and I'm thinking you're killing me here. <laughs> killing me. So I'm reading about the, you know the brioche, and I'm just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. My favorite question: You are in Paris, and you stop at this chic cafe near the Eiffel Tower, which you wrote is highly Instagrammable, right? That was in your, your character. And Lily bumps into you. What would Lily say to you and what would be your response? <laughs> I don't know what she would say to me. I think I don't I think we would have a like a, a great chat. She's like I said, Lily's probably the closest one to my heart. So I think we would find common ground because she was born in Vermont, um, and I was I was born in the Eastern Townships, which are right next to each other, uh, right on the international border. So I think we would we would probably talk about beautiful green rolling hills and uh, <laughs> dairy farming <laughs> while we enjoyed our espressos and uh, warm brioche. God, yeah. Okay. Well, Amy, this has been a blast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And um, I'm not quite finished yet. So I've I've got all these marks in here because like, of, of different things I wanted to read and, and ask you questions about. Um, this has been a, such a thrill. It really has. And thank you. Thank you for this book. It's been a, such a thrill. Oh, well, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast, which I've been enjoying sure. and, uh, and for having me on. I really appreciate it. Good. Okay, Amy. Happy writing. (laughs) Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.